Hi everyone, welcome to Ask ALB, a podcast that features interviews with prominent lawyers and thought leaders. My name is Julian from Asian Legal Business. Please note that the contents of this podcast is not to be taken as professional advice, but just general guideposts for you to think through the issues you face. This episode will focus on accelerating the due diligence assessment in an M&A. And we are very pleased to have our guest, James Liu, Managing Director and Beijing Director of the BGR Group, join this episode. During the course of his professional career, James has advised on venture investments both in the United States and China, represented multinational clients in their foreign direct investments in China, advised on mergers and acquisition deals, joint venture setups and restructurings, and all aspects of investments. In recent years, James' practice has extended to representing clients in the People's Republic of China, both state-owned and private clients on outbound investments in Europe and in the United States. James has been involved in all aspects of investments and m transactions in China, from the initial planning and structuring through to the approval and implementation. So welcome, James. How are you doing, James? I'm doing fine. Thank you, Julian. How are you? I'm doing well as well. So uh, let's begin. Can you tell our audience a little bit more about yourself and BGR Group? I'll be happy to. Um, well, I, my name is James Liu. Um, I was born and raised in China, went to college, went to Peking University. And uh, in the 80s, uh, I received a scholarship and uh, went to the U.S. Uh, for postgraduate studies. Uh, I, I started my career as a college teacher. Uh, I taught French and Chinese at University of Delaware. And uh, while teaching, I got enrolled in the MBA program. Uh, and before I finished uh, my MBA, I also received a scholarship to go to law school. Uh, I w- received my JD, passed the Maryland bar, and became a lawyer. Um, in 2002, my firm opened a Shanghai office uh, and sent me back to Shanghai, to China. Uh, so I have been back uh, to China and working for the past 19 years now. Um, in 2016, uh, I, while helping a client, uh, a very large SOE, uh, who faced a U.S. sanction, uh, I received uh, the request from my client to help them to lift the sanction uh, on the company by the U.S. Uh, Department of State. So I interviewed uh, BGR and hired BGR on behalf of, of the client. And uh, in the process of working with BGR, uh, I got to know BGR. And uh, well, they uh, wanted to open an office in uh, back in 2016 and early 2017. They invited me to join BGR as the head of their China operations. So I'm wearing two hats now. Uh, I'm still a lawyer, but at the same time, uh, um, I think I added a, a very different and yet very dynamic uh, dimension to my practice, which is, uh, let me talk, uh, talk about the BGR for uh, a very short moment. BGR is a premium, bipartisan, lobbying, government relations, and strategic communications firm. It's based in Washington, D.C. The firm was founded by the former 
governor of Mississippi and the chairman of the Republican uh, National Committee, Haley Barber, and uh, two of his associates, um, Lanny Griffiths and uh, Ed Rogers. So BGRs are the initials of the three last names of the two of the three founders. Uh, after I joined the, you know, BGR has a very solid lobbying and government relations and uh, public relations uh, practice. We do uh, federal and state and local lobbying. Uh, we, we do what it called a hard lobby. Um, when it comes to uh, strategic communications, uh, we make sure that uh, we bring our clients and get the attention of the stakeholders uh, at uh, you know the White House or different agencies at the federal government or uh, state and local governments. Um, to illustrate what I mean by lobbying, let me give you an example. Um, our client, while well, helping you know my first uh, uh, client uh, to solve the sanction issues, uh, we had a, a request from a private but very, very large uh, steelmaker uh, in China. And they were listed uh, in the U.S. legislation uh, to be sanctioned because they were buying coal from North Korea. So when they found us, uh, the, the legislation uh, has been read twice already in the Senate. And uh, as you know, the procedure, um, if he, if the, the legislation is being read three times, then you will go to the floor for a vote and you will certainly pass uh, the Senate and then you will move on to the House uh, and then, you know, all the way to White House for the uh, president's signature before it becomes law. Uh, so time was very pressing. Uh, we took our client, prepared them, uh, and uh, we hired a law firm from Washington, D.C., which we know well. Um, and together, we drafted uh, their entire uh, compliance program uh, within two weeks. And then we took the client to Washington, D.C. We paid visit to the sponsor of the legislation uh, of the draft law. Uh, you know, we, took, we visited the senator's office. We visited uh, the Foreign Affairs Committee uh, on the Senate, and also we talked to all the stakeholders uh, in this piece of legislation. Um, the reception from the sponsor of the uh, draft law was surprisingly warm. Uh, the senator told our client that you know they were the very first Chinese client uh, targeted uh, you know, for sanction, but they were the first one to reach out to U.S. legislators, uh, senators or congressmen and explain their position. And, uh, I remember very clearly, uh, one thing that, uh, the senator told our client that, you know, the purpose of our law is not to punish anybody, but to change behavior. So if you commit to not buying uh, coal from North Korea, then we will take that into consideration. Uh, long story short, after a pretty intense 
uh, for three weeks of communications with uh, the Senate and the senators who sponsored the bill, uh, we were able to take our client's name off the, off the potential uh, sanction list, uh, which really helped our clients uh, because, uh, as you may know, that the the power of the U.S. sanctions, you know, is not does not rest within the piece of legislation itself, but rather, um, if you are on the sanctions list, then your international monetary transactions can be stopped in in New York. So all your international wires will be will be basically cut off. Um, and well, my client had uh, uh, loans from, with many major banks in China, and the banks threatened to uh, kick them out of their banking system. Uh, that's really, you know, the the, the consequences of uh, the U.S. sanctions. Uh, yeah. As a result of our joint efforts, they were able to avoid being sanctioned. Uh, so that was. Uh, that's, that tells you several things, you know, to explain exactly what lobby is. Uh, number one, why we call ourselves uh, being able to do the quote-unquote strategic communications. That is, once you have an issue with uh, the U.S. government, the worst thing to do is to try to hide, you know, bury your head in, in the sand and, and, and pretend you don't see the problem coming. They will come. So the, the, the right strategy is to approach them and explain to them and show them that you are a normal business and in the course of a normal business transaction, um, you know, you may, uh, uh, you know, you, 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 you cross the line and, and, uh, became, uh, um, a target in the crosshair in the U.S. sanctions. Um, and, uh, so once you, you, you have the channels to effectively communicate your positions, then uh, it is not, it is fairly common in my new profession, you know, in this lobbying profession to help the U.S. legislators to, or the U.S. government to see your position and to understand better your position and, and therefore reach a compromise or a solution to your dilemma. Okay, that's very, very interesting uh, uh, thing that um, you're involved with. So, okay, so let's just get down to the topic for today, which is accelerating due diligence assessments in the M&A. Now, in the M&A process, obviously, the due diligence allows the buyers to confirm important information about the seller, you know, such as contracts, finances, and customers. And by gathering this information, I suppose the buyer is better equipped to make an informed decision and close the deal with a certain sense of security. Now, how can our audience prepare their due diligence team for this process or for success? My take has always been because of my um, MBA background, I am able to look at any transaction, any deal first from the business side, because I believe that, you know, to be a good lawyer, uh, you, you have to be, uh, you have to be able to understand the business logic and, uh, and, and talk to your client. Or if you are in in-house counsel, you know, talk to the business, BU head 
uh, or the project head and ask them what exactly is your goal and what is the purpose of your transaction. Once you have a good understanding of that business goal, then you, you, you will be in a better position to understand the, the legal pitfalls, uh, the, 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 the downfalls, the, the potential traps in this transaction. So you, you, this, I think this is number one. This is step one, uh, you must take. Um, and secondly, if, for example, um, you, different targets requires different approaches in, when it comes to due diligence. So, uh, have a, Thorough understanding of the target uh, is also a prerequisite uh, to any successful due diligence process uh, that you lead. Uh, for example, uh, if your target is a startup company, a, a high-tech startup company, or uh, whether the target is a, a, a growth in growth stage or a, a late stage uh, company readily you know, ready for IPO or, or is a public company. Uh, you know, these four types of, uh, targets requires a slightly different approach, uh, to the due diligence process. And then you need to emphasize, uh, you know, on different uh, areas, uh, in your process. Uh, let me take, uh, say a, a high tech startup as an example. Uh, you know, when you look at, the high tech startup, um, you know, the target. And then after you understand your business goal, uh, in, in the, you know, from your business, uh, uh, colleagues, then you know that most of the time, uh, a startup, their most valuable assets are the intellectual property rights. Uh, because in the high tech area, um, in industry, you know, the, 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 the brain power of that, uh, uh, of that target. Uh, probably is more important than their sales volumes. And a lot of times, you know, the target doesn't even have any sales, uh, because of the early stage in their development. So pay very close attention to intellectual property. Uh, of course, you know, the euro suspect, you have to take care of them. Uh, whether the, the company is being registered properly and so on and so forth. But the emphasis should be on, on two areas, I believe. Number one, intellectual property rights, uh, whether there's any potential, uh, infringement or, you know, who are your competitors and, uh, whether these, uh, IPs, uh, which are the most valuable assets in this target, whether they, they, they potentially infringe upon anybody else's rights. And, uh, you know, then creating conflicts and lawsuits, uh, then that would uh, have a major negative impact on, you know, the business prospect as well as the valuation uh, of the company. And then the, the, the human, uh, the human resources, because, you know, the CTO's position would be crucial. For example, you know, who are the, who, who is the, the CEO, uh, the leader and the real driver? Uh, of this company. So I, I believe that if you are a seasoned, experienced lawyer, uh, and then, uh, you probably would agree with me that these two areas are very much, uh, the first things you look at 
you, you look into very carefully. If you find anything um, uh, major, uh, any serious issue, then you may rethink your strategy. And as lawyer, and uh, we, we are trained to be the, the, the goalkeeper, right? Mm -hmm. So we, we are really the, um, uh, we are trained to think about, uh, think of the worst case scenario, the downside first, before you think about the upside. Uh, you know, our, our pro thought process is very different from the business side. The business yes. people would look at the, you know, how much money they're going to make in, in this deal. You as a lawyer, we look at the risk first and then come up with how to avoid these risks. Uh, that would be my, my recommendation, my advice. Right. How, how do you go about identifying some of these critical issues that are specific to their business? I think you mentioned that for, I, uh, you know, um, tech companies, obviously the intellectual property is very, very important. Then how about other companies? What advice can you give our audience on how to look into these uh, deal specific issues that are important to their business? Um, then in, in general, um, I think number one, uh, as a practical matter, uh, always, always organize your team with experienced lawyers. Uh, you know, look at, look at your own team and say, okay, uh, depending on the size of the deal. So you, you have a, a good assessment of how much work and manpower you need to put into this deal. Right. And then uh, look at the composition of your team. You, you may need a couple young lawyers and, uh, you know, they can, they can be, uh, helpful, uh, in the process, but, uh, you do need a few, a couple experienced lawyers, say, you know, five to six, seven years, uh, experience, uh, post qualification. And, and you, you need to know your team well. That would be my, uh, my approach, you know, dealing with any, any deals. Uh, after that, when you feel confident, that your team can handle the work, then come up with a list of due diligence uh, list and, and discuss with your business unit colleagues uh, and, and ask them, well, please read this list carefully and do you have any suggestions? Does my list cover all areas of your concerns? And... Uh, you, you find that this step, uh, if you do well and you do a good job, in, you know, in here, it saves a lot of time down the road and yeah. avoid mistakes you make. Um, so, uh, did I, did I answer your question or, yeah. um, uh, yeah. but these are really just, you know, from my experience. Um, yeah. So, you know, sometimes when you buy, um, an organization, you may be a, little, be a little concerned. Will you be buying a violation? Because, you know, how can an organization manage any compliance risk or corruption risk in a deal? Um, that's a hard question. Yeah. And, uh, but it's also a very practical question. Uh, general counsels face that 
question yes. every single day. Uh, as a, a outside lawyer, um, when you when we advise our um, our clients, I think my number rule number one rule is that I lay out the risk and I explain the legal pitfalls very clearly to my clients and tell them that these are potential red flags. And uh, as a, um, a lawyer, as your lawyer, I'm going to raise these red flags. I'm going to flag these issues to you. Uh, that's that's first step. Step number two, talk to your business uh, colleagues and, and try to find a way, number one, to avoid them. And number three, have your own compliance uh, program in place. So you have a systematic um, mechanism in place to avoid uh, a institutional mistake um, when it runs uh, into a, you know, cross the red line, so to speak. Uh, that would be my advice. But don't, uh, as a, especially younger lawyers, sometimes they are afraid to challenge their client. Um, that they, they are afraid that, uh, you know, if their efforts, their judgment, um, you know, is viewed by their bosses, uh, or by the business colleagues as impediment to the deal, um, then they, they, they may become less popular than they wish. Uh, but my advice is, um, as a, you, as, as a lawyer, you always remember your ethics and you, you, you need to tell your client and you owe them a duty to explain these uh, red flags uh, in a very clear and uh, equivocal fashion. Um, and uh, then that is not to say that your job is there to kill the deal. But, you know, what is more important in here is uh, help your client to understand the risk, but come up with a solution, uh, how to avoid them. Right. But do you have any specific advice on how someone can avoid liabilities uh, of past violations in an M&A target? Um, I, I, let, me, let me give you an example in, yeah. let's say, healthcare industry, which is uh, um, everybody knows that uh, um, the, the, the home ball problem um, in, in, let's say, uh, drug companies or device companies uh, in, in the sales process, right? Uh, and and uh, I think the government knows the problem really well. They know what, what is going on. Um, say, if you are a private equity firm, and you are buying into a uh, a drug company, and uh, you should assume as the lawyer that they have some practices, business practices uh, that are not, uh, you know, in compliance with the regulations. Uh, then you need to identify them, understand them, and uh, the most practical. Uh, solution is to establish a, a firewall. Uh, in law school, what you, what you, we learn that 
you know, is a China wall, right? And you, you basically contain those problems to a, 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 a segment in the deal that is not related, cannot be legally traced back to your client. So you, you protect them, uh, you, you provide legal protection to them. Kind of like refencing, I suppose. Yes. That's another way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. Please continue. Uh, <laughs> um, that I think is happening every single day hmm. um, in in real practice. Uh, your law school professors probably cannot teach you that, um, but uh, if you are a practicing lawyer or if you are a general counsel in a company, uh, then you face these issues uh, day in and day out. So if you are a general counsel, you, you're in-house, then you really need to have a uh, training program in place uh, within your organization. Um, and that has to be institutionalized uh, together with your compliance program uh, and, and uh, educate the business people, the sales people. Uh, we, we know how hard the, the work, the job is, uh, because it, within any businesses, uh, any companies, uh, the CEO probably uh, will not listen to the lawyers every time, but they will listen to the salesmen, um, to the salespeople. Uh, when they open the mouth, they get the CEO's attention. And so that's uh, as a, as a, as a in-house counsel, uh, then your job is twofold. Number one, you need to make sure that, uh, you know, you get the attention of the real decision maker. And number two, you also need to safeguard the, uh, the interest of the company, uh, because you, you, you're not the CEO's or the chairman's lawyer. Your duty, your own, your duty to that corporation, to that, that entity. That's where your, your ultimate loyalty should, uh, lie. So, in that dilemma, how do you, how do you balance, uh, you know, these two, um, very demanding, uh, demanding goal, uh, goals? Um, that's, uh, a, an art. It's not a science. But, uh, my final advice on this topic is be firm, but polite. Mm. That's you. That's the job of a lawyer. Okay. Uh, we have this question from our readers uh, quite often, the people who come to attend our events. Um, they ask, what measures can you take to minimize cross-border M&A disputes? Is there anything that can be done during the due diligence process, in your opinion? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think, you know, as the, we always, we always joke, you know, before you, you get to the deal, then, um, do your homework, right? That homework is the due diligence and is even before a formal due diligence process. Uh, in a cross-border setting, um, I think in addition to the conventional due diligence process, uh, my experience in the past five, six years uh, working with BGR and uh, heading BGR's China practice also uh, taught me that uh, the political risk is uh, is also a 
of paramount importance in cross-border transactions. Um, I, I came to realize that uh, um, as the government has a policy to encourage Chinese companies, SOEs or private companies to be more quote-unquote international, but how do you judge? What is the what are the criteria you use to say that oh this company is more international than the other company? To me, um, I have my private uh, a gauge. Uh, I, I would take up my my own ruler and, and measure you know the my client and to see how international they are. That is whether. Number one, they understand the, the local politics. They understand the rules of engagement and whether they can engage, uh, firms like BGR to help them to hold their hand and navigate the complicated political, uh, nuances. Um, that I think is many companies engaging in um, cross-border transactions do not realize that they, they take a domestic mindset. They, they treat a cross-border transaction as a domestic transaction. And, uh, that is not to say they're not smart business people, but they're just simply inexperienced. In that inexperience, then they would just apply their, their experience and the rules in a domestic transaction and, and think consciously or subconsciously believe that it'll also work in a cross-border transaction. And I see, um, companies got into trouble, uh, 80% of the time, uh, that could, could have been avoided had they adapted a different approach. So. Uh, the political due diligence, uh, is, is very, very important. Uh, for example, you go into a, uh, you know, Middle East, or let's say you go to the U.S. and you need to hire an advisor, uh, you know, someone who knows the, the politics. And then you, 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 you need to do a due diligence on the person, on your advisor as well. And understand which political fraction that he represents and, uh, what kind of a political access he has, whether he really does have that, uh, um, the power that he, uh, he claims, you know, to have, or he's just talking. Um, all this, in addition to, you know, the legal conventional due diligence, then the political risk assessment um, is is increasingly important. As you know, um, uh, um, as our audience uh, must know, that the political tension between uh, China and the U.S. Um, increased tremendously in the past five years. Um, you know, during the Trump administration, um, the nature of the bilateral relationship uh, took a fairly dramatic turn. Um, so in that um, backdrop against this background, um, I would encourage any in-house lawyers when they consider a cross-border transaction to add a political 
risk assessment or you know what we call a, a due diligence, a, a political due diligence to their long list of uh, due diligence questionnaires and be prepared for any political turbulence that may affect impact of their deals. Okay. Can you, can you share about some ideas on how to get to the right level of analysis then? I mean, based on what you've discussed, I mean, due diligence can go on for a very, very long time because you can never have too much analysis anyway. If, I mean, there's a political aspect to look into, you know, you, you have to look into the potential risk of uh, buying a valuation and so forth. There can never be too much analysis and it go on for quite a long time. How, how do you tell that you have enough analysis so that we can take the deal to the next stage of the process? Um, it's, I, I wanted to say it's simple, mm. but, um, but it's also not simple because there's a lot of homework you must, must do uh, yeah. before it becomes simple. Um, hire the right people to do the right work. Uh, that's my my experience and uh, has always been my approach. Uh, you, you don't, you, the, the biggest risk for any uh, advisor, legal or otherwise, is for the person to know enough to be, to be dangerous. That, that, I mean, you know, by that is the person knows somewhat has certain knowledge level, but it doesn't really, he or she, doesn't really know it, then based on his or her assumption, then he may become uh, the advice may not may not be the best advice that you can give to your client uh, at the moment. I, I think that that's something that you should absolutely avoid uh, as a in-house counsel or as a uh, outside lawyer. You should always know what you don't know. And once you know that you don't know a certain area, you, you lack the expertise in that area, run for help. Go to the, you know, find the professionals. And there, there are um, many good firms out there who, who are, who specialize in a, a certain area of, uh, um, uh, a certain area and they can be very effective. Um, so that's part of the doing homework, uh, requirement, uh, in my, in my experience. Yeah. Finally, this is not really related to due diligence, but how do you think the pandemic affected m and work, especially for cross-border deals? And do you have any advice or suggestions on how to overcome these hurdles? Um, pandemic has... I would say minimum impact on domestic deals. Uh, the M&A market is still there, although uh, there are large PE funds, uh, you know, complain that uh, good targets are, are, are more difficult to find because of the size of their, uh, of their requirement uh, of the deal. Not, but good targets are out there. Um, you know, you need to have your deal team to, uh, to look for it. Um, but cross border transaction had so a major hit, uh, in the past year. 
uh, during the uh, the pandemic, the lockdown, uh, as many countries uh, um, had to, um, you know, lockdown due to the pandemic. Uh, business meetings got cancelled, and the face-to-face meeting, which are the most effective, you know, ways of communication in a cross-border transaction, uh, just could not take place. Uh, all this adds to the political uh, difficulties, uh, then it becomes uh, just a lot more difficult for uh, people who want to do cross-border transactions. Um, okay. So, uh, in, in summary, um, in cross-border transactions, especially in the new era, as we uh, we enter you know, the first year of the Biden administration and, uh, you know, four years down the road and, and beyond, I would, I would share my client, uh, my, my audience, uh, this experience that I come to realize, uh, that, uh, in any cross border transactions, there's three, three levels of logic. The basic, the, you know, at the first level is the business logic. You know, why you want to do the deal? Because the deal will help my business to grow, to make more money. So that's the economics. In the middle, the logic would be legal. That's our lawyers would come in. And uh, lawyers and, and laws are, by definition, you know, set of rules that you'll follow. You'll help your clients to draft an airtight contract. Uh, you know, that beyond the attacks, uh, and, and, uh, then to make sure that your client's interest uh, will be, uh, better protected. Um, but that's not all. That's, that, that's not a, a, a complete set of, uh, you know, business picture that you look at, uh, as you, your good advisor. A good advisor would also look at the, the third level, the, the upper level logic of the deal. That's politics. As the saying goes, rules are rules, but law is politics. So the very top, especially when it comes to bigger deals, large deals in cross-border setting, always keep the politics in the back of your, your mind and be, be diligent and be aware of political issues in your deal. Thank you so much for the insights. So with that, we've come to the end of today's episode of Ask ALV. I'd really like to thank James for joining us today. Uh, James, do you have any final words uh, to give our listeners on due diligence in MMA? Any final words at all? Um, sure. Uh, in my experience, um, I believe that a, a good uh, in-house counsel uh, would always have a list of uh, uh, outside advisors uh, um, that he can trust, he can reach out to uh, in real time. Uh, that's the uh, one of the most uh, time-saving and uh, uh, efficient way uh, to function as an in-house counsel. Okay. Uh, thank you very much, James. Where can our listeners find you if they have any questions pertaining to issues? That we've discussed today. Um, they can find me uh, on our website and uh, through email. Um, 
Our website is www.bgrdc.com. Uh, we also have a page in Chinese, uh, and I, which we recently added. Uh, and also my uh, email is jliu, jliu at bgrchina.com. Cool. So with that, I'd like to thank James and thank everyone for joining us today. Remember, Ask ALV can be streamed on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcast. And we'll catch you in the next episode. Thank you, everyone. And thank you, James. 